What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Closing argument. Walter Hudson. Pursuing happiness thoughtfully. 8 to 10 weeknights on Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130 and 103.5 FM. It's getting real now. We are 24 hours away from our last broadcast here on Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Closing argument with Walter Hudson is coming to an end. Until then, we are streaming TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. 8 to 10 tonight and tomorrow, and that's it. You can join us tonight, 651-989-5855. Brianne taking your calls, producing the show. Uh, last night, uh, we said our farewells to Pastor Nathan Roberts, who has been our our regular tour guide through progressive insanity over the course of the last year and a half. We've enjoyed those conversations. and uh, We've had fun. We've gotten frustrated. I know you guys have gotten frustrated by some of the perspectives that uh, we've shared and entertained here on those Tuesday nights, but I hope you have found uh, the effort productive as well in terms of being able to better understand what it is that we're up against. And it's always been nice in the sequence of the week to then transition into Wednesday when we start off with our friends over at Christian, uh, for the new Christian Intellectual, christianintellectual.com, Jacob Brutton and Cody Leibolt. And uh, we are once again going to speak with them tonight. Uh, Cody Leibolt is on the line. Is Jacob with you tonight, Cody? I'm on my line. Okay. We're, I guess we're still waiting for Jacob to join us, but we'll go ahead and get started with you. Very much appreciate you coming on the program once again, Cody. And, you, you know, it's I, I feel as though with all of these segments that we've uh, been able to enjoy with one another in discussion of various topics, uh, it it may have gotten lost somewhere in the mix what it is that you're ultimately trying to do with your organization with the website over there christianintellectual.com for folks who have not had the opportunity to click on the link and read what you guys have been writing and listen to the podcast tell us what is a new christian intellectual and why do we need one right now we are standing up for reason as our means of understanding God's revelation, which is an unusual starting point if for a Christian perspective is to say we pursue the truth no matter where it leads. And reason is our only means of pursuing the truth. So that's really our big bone that we pick with a lot of conservatives, traditionalists, even though we align with them on various issues. Right. So because we affirm reason as our standard for knowledge, we also affirm individualism, not collectivism, as a foundation for healthy communities. Uh, individualism is what happens when you take man's individual mind, because only, only individuals have minds, mm-hmm. and you take that seriously, and you uphold their rights to their life, to their property. And, uh, and holy self-interest is an unusual 
vantage point for a Christian, holy self-interest. But you, Walter, you've talked a lot about that. Why would I want to be a Christian if if this religion wasn't good for me? So right. that's part of uh, our perspective, and then individual rights. So the, the, as you can tell, if you're a libertarian and a Christian, a lot of what we're doing at ChristianIntellectual.com is going to really appeal to you. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're coming at it from a Reformed theological perspective, but mainly the goal is to fill the world with thoughtful Christians of, of various types, to fill the world with Christians who can represent the claims of Christianity in a way that convinces people. And it's interesting that it, that's referred to as the new, the new Christian intellectual, because it strikes me that this approach, that this is actually a form of, of reformation in its own right, that this is actually an old approach to how Christians have uh, encountered and dealt with their, their faith and dealt with the world around them, and something that we've drifted away from over the the centuries and are now being called back to. I'm curious on your uh, take on that perspective and to the extent to which you agree or disagree. We're not aiming to achieve any kind of theological uh, novelty here. If somebody is trying to create a new theology, that's usually a bad sign. Right. And, and we are trying to restore what has been lost. The classical appreciation for philosophy, for Aristotle, for Aquinas, for uh, Augustine, and uh, we are, and, and Jonathan Edwards, and, and leading all the way up to more close to the present time, R.C. Sproul, this classical approach to philosophy is something that has been lost within, uh, within fundamentalist Christians, which I call myself a fundamentalist proudly, but a lot of my fundamentalist friends, uh, we, we, you just would not find that appreciation for classical philosophy. And what, what's being lost there is the ability to think in principle on the issues like social justice or racism or, or things like that, but also on, on why we should even be Christians in the first place. We, we lose principles altogether when we lose philosophy. Yeah, it's so true that there's a. It, it's funny because conservatives have this this kind of uh, schizophrenic nature, where on the one hand we criticize the left for their moral relativity and their uh, whimsical nature of following their emotions wherever the the winds of the moment take them, but at the same time, for many conservative Christians who have not taken seriously the responsibility, as you and Jacob articulate it of thinking and actually thinking through why you believe the things that you believe that that is just as errant in terms of the the potential to be caught up in in winds that take you in random directions that are not moored in any sort of principle or belief can you give a few examples or does anything come to mind as you hear that of particularly concerning and strong currents in the culture that have really taken the grip of the church, hold of the church, and pulled it in the wrong direction? The church is being taken over by the social justice trend, especially in the last several years. There was, uh, in a couple years ago, there was the MLK50 conference mm-hmm. in which the ERLC and the Gospel Coalition were all, they, they were aligned in, I mean, this is, these are organizations that are mainstream evangelical Christian organizations that were, championing MLK, Martin Luther King, coincidentally enough, this week, is, uh, we celebrate him. Right. Uh, but they were, they, were, they were championing him as if he had uh, been a, a really wonderful moral example. Right. And right. They, were, uh, they were championing some of the ideas that have come after him, but within his stream that have led towards socialism and that have led toward oppress, you know, the oppression Olympics and victimology and all that. So 
we've seen that trend. And whenever you have a concrete issue that you disagree with somebody about, like say, for example, socialized medicine, somebody says we need a system uh, that's going to bring, I don't know, medical justice. It's <laughs> a new term, right? right. And, and you say, well, well, where do we disagree? And you ask them, what is the, the premise behind that? And you, and you realize as a society, we've lost the ability to question premises mm. and to identify where is it that we actually disagree. Because obviously we, we agree that everybody, if, if at all possible, should be taken care of. I mean, I, I'm not advocating a world where half the people have no access to health care. Right. I care about the things you care about, but why do we disagree about this one principle? And that's going to come down to can you identify in black and white terms answers to questions that are yes or no? Do people have the right to enslave others? Yes or no? Mm. Now, go and apply that to that doctor that you're telling him he has to work for you for this amount of pay. He can't choose if he's going to work for you or not. You're making him a slave. Yes or no? So these are the, these are the kinds of discussions that people are not having because uh, I think in the interest of being winsome, in the interest of being moderate, and uh, we are radicals, and I think that is the only way forward for our society. Well, I very much tend to agree, as, as listeners to the program uh, are no doubt aware, I, I've become increasingly, well, frankly, intolerant of anything other than a, a sort of a battlefield combat approach to taking on the culture, because we're, we're very much uh, proceeding in an arena where there are, there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. There's going to be ideas that prevail and ideas that are left behind. And if we're not willing to, to, to fight quite literally for um, the, the integrity and the moral superiority of our ideas, then they're going to get sidelined as they have been for many years. I'm interested, Cody, in your, your perspective uh, as somebody who is very much involved in that arena and is fighting on a day-to-day basis in social media through your writing and through the podcast that you two put together that I highly recommend for the New Christian Intellectual, what has the reaction been, both positive and negative, and what's your prognosis for where the culture can go moving forward? There is a group of people who react very positively to the message that we're pronouncing, and there's a group of people that react extremely negatively. And that is by design. If you want to make a splash in a social media setting or a marketing setting, you have to polarize. You don't want to be that guy that just comes in and says things that people mostly agree with or always agree with. Mm. You want to be saying the kinds of things that are going to catch attention and that are going to make certain people listen to you and, and actually care to the right. point where they get involved. Right. And they're going, to, they're going to respect you more over time when they see you doing that. So whenever we've picked certain battles, like this, this idea of rational self-interest for Christians, Christians mm. should love their own lives, there's been a major pushback from the seminary in crowd they don't like that. When we push against presuppositionalism, you know, the snobs treat us like, <laughs> like we're dirt. And mm-hmm. so the, uh, it, there's, there's a Christian culture, seminary guy culture that we do not fit in with. But with people that are looking at society more broadly and saying socialism is danger, we found a voice with them. And, uh, and with people that are independent thinkers that, that have read a lot of history, that we tend to have great conversations. And there's respect built, even if we don't align on every issue. It's, it's people that are independent thinking that recognize each other in this environment. 
We're joined on the line as well by Jacob Brunton, who's Cody Leibold's partner at For the New Christian Intellectual. Jacob, appreciate you coming on with us. And uh, as you no doubt heard there towards the end, I was I was asking Cody for his perspective on you know how you two have been received in your activism and trying to call Christians and the broader culture to reason and uh, to actually think through what we believe and why we believe it. Uh, Jacob, you've, you've had some particularly uh, provocative episodes where you've been engaged in debate with folks who uh, stand very much against the idea of incorporating reason into the Christian worldview. I'm interested in, in your thoughts on how that task has been going and what you see going going forward in terms of a, a trajectory for the future. Sure. Uh, and quickly, thanks for having me on. Um, my fundamental conviction whenever I engage with anybody on a controversial topic, whether it's one-on-one over coffee or online via social media, is that I want to know what's true. And ideally, the other person does too. Um, I, I don't want to believe a lie. I don't want to be worshiping a false god mm. or uh, be endorsing a false morality. I, I want to believe what's true. And and so that's why I want to engage in that rational dialogue, in that debate. And that, that's what we're all about. We want to be pursuers of truth, lovers of truth, and bringing other people along and saying, if we're wrong about something, please prove us wrong. And in the meantime... Uh, as long as we've got good reason to believe we're right, we're going to charge forth on that conviction because the truth is tied into what is good for for you, good for life, good for the world, um, and good for glorifying God in the long run. It, it strikes me as something that is threatening. It's inherently threatening, the idea of the truth, that there's a... The threat is that you'll discover that something's true that requires something of you. To to what degree do you do you find that that's the the psychology that you're up against from your harshest critics? That the idea that you're taking a stance and you're not saying, "Well, this is what I this is what's good for me. This is how I feel about it." But no, this is what is true, and therefore this is how humans should act. Yeah, I think I think we all have that tendency, and, and I would call that sort of the heart of sin, right? That that's you know the tendency to want to project onto the world what we wish it to be, rather than accepting the way things are and learning to live and adapt to them. Um, it is is really the the fundamental uh, aspect of man that that we would refer to as our sinful nature. Yeah. And so I, I can, in a sense, sympathize with that, that fearful mentality or that posture that certain people have and that motivates them to uh, reject our sort of reason-based and truth-oriented mindset. But then I would say, join me in fighting that, and, and let's, let's call each other out of that. Let's, let's try to be something better, because at the end of the day, it's just not true that the truth is against you. Um, you know, ultimately, if, if you're at war with reality in whatever area of life, reality is bigger than you. It's going to last longer than you. It's going to win. And so if, if you think that what, what, what you want is at odds with reality, well, then you better work on changing what you want because otherwise you're going to be at war with reality and you're going to lose. Reality wins every time. It's a fantastic tagline that I would uh, 
equally appropriate for defining the commentary we've had on these segments and uh, even broader just here on the show, closing argument. Very much appreciate Jacob Brutton, Cody Leibolt for the new Christian Intellectual, ChristianIntellectual.com. Uh, my final appeal to listeners, check them out. You'll be glad you did. Thanks, gentlemen, for joining me tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. Take care. When we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, reflections on our final conversation with those two. And uh, after the bottom of the hour, we're expecting to be joined by John Gizzi, who is the White House correspondent for Newsmax. And uh, he's coming to town. He's going to be speaking at the Legislative Evaluation Assembly Banquet. We'll find out more details about that and get into his perspective on the news of the day regarding impeachment. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Outson, Twin Cities News Talk. Doc. I was uh, thumbing through Facebook today. And I came across one of those memories. The memory. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Race function really is quite ingenious. It's a great way to uh, capture you and distract you. This particular one was a, a post from a friend of mine by the name of Corey Whalen, who I believe her official title now is communications director for Cato. It's, it's actually probably a fancier title than that. But basically what she does is she coordinates the media appearances of Cato scholars on uh, various outlets, national outlets. I never took advantage of this, by the way. That's how, that's how, uh, <laughs> that's how I dropped the ball. Never took advantage of this access to Cato that I could have easily had with a, a simple uh, email. But regardless, she's a libertarian. Makes sense, working for Cato. And her and I had very similar reactions to Donald Trump in 2016, which is to say negative, you know, never Trump. That's where I was at in 2016. And what I find interesting in this memory reminded me of it because it was something she had to say from back in those days. What's interesting is that over the subsequent years, I've gone in one direction and that's putting on the MAGA hat. And she has stayed very much in that same spot that she had her feet stuck in in 2016. And, you know, we both have the same convictions and the same goals for politics and society and have taken very different approaches in the subsequent years when it comes to how we regard Donald Trump. And it got me thinking about why that is and the question of principle. Because from her perspective, and I know because we've had conversations along these lines, from her perspective, somebody like me, and there are many people like me who were not fans of Donald Trump in 2016 and have warmed up to him and even become enthusiastic supporters of him 
in the subsequent years. People like me are traitors to principle. We cast our principles aside in order to go with the masses, go with the flow, be part of the popular trend. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. As I hope longtime listeners of the program uh, would concur, popularity has never really been one of the driving forces in what I select to talk about or what I select to articulate, think, and share. You know, if that were the case, I wouldn't be. Yeah, you know, I, I had a, a segment on the show last night where I was talking about I was talking about slavery in a positive connotation. Go back and check that one out on the podcast feed. All right, so popularity is not really the the top-level concern when it comes to the positions I take in public. So, so what is the explanation? If it's not going with the winds, if it's not blowing with the current, then how is it that two people who hold the same political principles or very similar political principles can come to very different positions regarding support for somebody like Donald Trump? And I was thinking about it today, and it occurred to me that principle, which is often lauded, you know, we talked a lot about idols earlier this week, idols in our culture. Political principles can be one of those idols. Absolutely. I think there are many examples. Just like you can have personality cults, you can also have a type of principle cult where you take ideals and ideas and make idols out of them and fail to recognize the limitations of a, of a theoretical idea. Principles are, of course, extremely important. We just got done talking to Jacob Breton and Cody Leibold about the sovereignty of reality. You know, reality is going to be here longer than you, is the way Jacob put it. If you, to the extent that you're at war with reality, you are going to fail. That's one way of saying principles matter. You know, a principle is the recognition of an aspect of reality. It's something that you can count on, something that's immutable, something that will not change. But a principle by itself, onto itself, is not going to help you decide how to, how to think and what to do. You need more than just the principle. You need an understanding of how to apply it to the circumstances in which you find yourself. And in order to reach that place, you need to have an accurate perception of your circumstances in order to make a sound judgment. And this is what I think the difference is between somebody like myself and somebody like my friend Corey. And obviously she feels as though her perspective is the accurate one, the clear-eyed perspective, and I feel as though mine is. That's natural. Point being, the... It's not a contest of who is most in line with their prescribed principles or their spouse principles. It's a question of who has the more accurate perspective. Who's wearing the glasses that actually correct their vision? Who's seeing the world for what it is? And, you know, from my perspective, what I came to, and I've articulated it many times since putting on the MAGA hat here on the program, for me, I feel as though I was unaware in 2016 of the extent to which we are in a cultural and political war. Politics is not a discussion. It's not a debate. It's not a, it's not a contest of ideas. It's not a marketplace of ideas. 
it is an arena. It's a contest uh, of the sort where there are going to be winners and losers, those conquered and those doing the conquering. And in that context, you have to go with the general that's going to win the fight for your freedom of conscience, for your freedom of religion, for your freedom, period. And if that happens to be a George Patton who's extremely imperfect and every once in a while slaps a soldier around and swears, then that's the one you're going to have to go with if he's effective. And that's the position we find ourselves in with Donald Trump. And it's it's not a question of, you know, is is Donald Trump a libertarian? No. Is he even really a conservative in the, you know, the, the 1990s Rush Limbaugh sense of the term? No, not at all. You know, I was talking, I was actually talking about this with Nathan last night. You can see the trajectory of the Republican Party and the trajectory of conservatism tangential to it by looking at 1990s Rush Limbaugh to 2000s Bill O'Reilly to the current Tucker Carlson era. That's the trajectory from a kind of old school textbook conservatism to the, this new thing that Bill O'Reilly started to introduce when he talked about the folks, started to focus on no spin and what the folks feel and how the folks are involved. That was the populism started to bubble up. And now it is manifest in Tucker Carlson's national conservatism, which is something that is unrecognizable from the perspective of the 90s. And so, you know, I think that too is... A an example of what I'm talking about, where perspectives change over time and people struggle to apply their principles to their new perception of circumstance. And it ends up manifesting in strange and sometimes unpredictable ways. And so as we go forward, as you go forward, after the show comes to an end, you know, keep that in mind. When these circular firing squads pop up, where we start to accuse each other of being rhinos and unprincipled and traitors to the cause and this, that, and other thing. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that does happen. There's no doubt about it. Sometimes, though, people just have a shift in perspective that changes how they apply their principles. And uh, we could stand to use a little bit of grace when we're dealing with each other on that front. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app, we are here, 8 to 10, Tonight, tomorrow, that's it. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brianne, taking your calls, producing the show. Let's hear from Alan in Minnetonka. Welcome to the program. Okay, yeah, Walter. So listen, I wanted to uh, bring up what I could see as being a contradiction that I, uh, I've uh, come across in Christian belief, having to do with defending... Uh, the approach that uh, man ha- seems to be having uh, towards climate change and a belief called deism. 
Okay, expound. So deism being the belief that God wound up uh, wound up the earth at the beginning, and it is it's playing out like a a clock winding mm-hmm. down, where right. he takes his hands off and he is not in control anymore. Yeah, this is the absentee landlord theory of the divine. Right. So. I believe that God is in control. I okay. just wanted to bring out that that appear what uh, appears to be a contradiction. Well, I'm not following you. Well, uh, those Christians who would defend um, man-made climate changes mm-hmm. and when you say defend them, you mean defend the idea of catastrophic anthropogenic climate change? Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. That's what I'm saying. So Christians who defend that, what? That's the that's who we're they, talking about. That, what are we... they, that they actually believe in deism, and they don't even realize it. I, okay, I think I'm picking up on what you're putting down now. So what you're saying is is that there's a there's a cognitive dissonance between the traditional Christian worldview, which is that God is in control and that he has set limits to the amount of damage that human sin could do. And if you believe that, then it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to also think that we're somehow going to destroy the planet with our cars. Correct. Yeah, I I, I would follow that. Now, that's okay. not that's not to say, and I appreciate the call, Alan, that's not to say because you know that's that's hearkening back to you know if you're a Christian, hearkening back to the what do they call that the Noahic covenant? I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but basically when God promised Noah when He gave us the the rainbow and promised that He wasn't going to destroy the earth again, and then there are other passages in Scripture which indicate that the the earth uh, shall not perish, that the earth will not be destroyed in that sense ever again. And so, you know, there's a there's a criticism of that that you'll hear from both progressive Christians, to the extent there is such a thing, and secular folk who will be like, well, you know, you silly Christians with your your God talk feel think feel as though you have no responsibility to the planet because God's going to save you. And uh, you know, look, that there's a sense in which that's true, but it's not to say that there isn't a responsibility even uh, um, amongst the most faithful Christian who believes that God won't allow the earth to be destroyed by man's sin, there's still a responsibility to stewardship of creation. I mean, the first Adam's first mission on earth, other than to multiply and fill it was to have dominion over it and to be a caretaker to cultivate. He was provided the garden as an example and told to go forth and cultivate the rest of the earth in like manner. And cultivating the earth does not mean eating it, for lack of a better term. It doesn't mean consuming it. It doesn't mean ruining it. And so there is a a biblical sense in which one should be a conservationist. The problem is we don't have room in our current discourse for that sort of, of nuance. We don't have room for the perspective that says, yes, of course we should be we should avoid waste. We should reuse to the extent 
possible. We should take actions that make sense in order to ensure that our environment, our planet, our earth, the air we breathe, the water we drink is clean and healthy and sustainable. Of course we should do those things. But why? Why ultimately is that important? And the answer that I would give is human life. The purpose of the earth is to serve human life. That's why it was created. That's why it was given to us. And to the extent that we conserve our environment, we're conserving our environment. That's where the emphasis lies. We're not conserving it for its sake. We're conserving it for our sake. And that's the major difference between the way uh, a, a Christian or even a secular conservative would tend to think about the environment and the way that the radical environmental leftists think about it. For them, they make an idol out of the earth itself and an idol out of nature. And it becomes the thing to be served rather than the thing that is utilized to serve humanity. And that's why you have prescriptions for fewer people. You know, there's too much population. We need to crank up abortion. We need to you know, advocate for uh, the human genocide and not having babies. And you got kids coming out of college, girls coming out of college, pledging to not get married and not have children. And it's this anti-life perspective that's completely insane. When we come back, Dr. Winnie is going to join us. And she has written a children's book about Donald Trump. 651-989-5855. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We have on the line the author of a children's book entitled I Am President Donald J. Trump and I Love America, Dr. Winnie. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Walter. Thank you so much. I very much uh, appreciate having you on the show. Uh, apologize. We were supposed to have you on a little bit earlier, but of course, I screwed that up as I tend to do. Here uh, on the program once <laughs> That's in a while. Really okay, I'm just so happy to be speaking to everyone in Minnesota. It's the place of my birth. I sure. since moved on like every millennial. <laughs> right. After around a few states, and now I live in the state of Missouri with my husband and three kids. So, speaking of kids, what is it that motivated you to write a children's book about President Trump? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I've been home with my children. I have a PhD. I must be the most overeducated stay-at-home mom there is. <laughs> but I've been home with my kids now for a couple of years, and I like to take them to the library, and we read books on all kinds of people. There's books on Hillary Clinton. There's books on the presidents. There's even books on Sacagawea. Mm. But you can find nothing positive on the current president. Mm. And it got me thinking about the kinds of values that we are transmitting to our children. And, you know, the left has Greta, St. Greta, and they can read all kinds of things about Greta on Twitter, about the environment, and about, you know, any number of issues that the left wants to indoctrinate our children with. But then we have, in our very lifetime, a president who has done more for America than, you know, some say than Washington or even Lincoln did. Uh, I mean, you have to give it to the general. He was the first. So, you know, maybe not as much as Washington, but President Trump has fundamentally 
realigned our priorities and we are experiencing that we are living through that and yet we are not giving him the due respect that he deserves as president as commander-in-chief and we are not teaching our children to have that sense of patriotism Mm. which is necessary if we want to continue our democratic republic in the next generation so it had me thinking about what can i do what can i do to help my kids feel patriotic about America, to love America, to know that their president loves America and loves uh, specifically the unborn. And, and when, you know, we'll talk more about the, the actual layout of the book, but my favorite page of the book is a book, uh, is a page where President Trump is hugging two babies on the campaign trail. I mean, this is the most pro-life president of my lifetime. And so I wanted to get my children, who I'm raising as pro-life kids, the pro-life generation, to know that their president is pro-life and loves America, and um, they should love America, too. You know, it it actually is, to to listen to you talk about it, it it has been a delightful surprise, because you're not wrong. He is, like, on the merits. He is the most pro-life president, and who would have thought? Donald Trump, you know, if if you could wind the clock back 10 years to... You know the 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 reality TV days and the the your fired days that that guy was going to end up being our most pro life president. It is quite remarkable. So as children are, are are having the experience of reading this book with their parents, what what sort of things are they going to be learning about this president? Well, the book is really based on some of the iconic pictures that have come out from the campaign trail and from his presidency so far. So the cover of the book. And if your audience wanted to follow along, you can see a copy of it on TrumpLovesAmerica.org. That's the name of my website that has the book featured. So the cover is President Donald J. Trump hugging the American flag. And that came right off of the campaign trail. He would travel around the country and to show his enthusiasm for America, he says, you know, do not disrespect our flag. And he goes over and he hugs the flag. Mm-hmm. And so it's literally that iconic shot that I had the artist illustrate. So every page is an iconic picture of Donald Trump. Uh, there's the blogger out there, Conservative Mama, she offered her daughter, a baby girl, to Trump, you know, during the campaign, and he's hugging her tightly. So that iconic shot has been shared thousands and thousands of times online. That shot is also in the book, and it's just a first-person narrative. It reads as if Trump were talking to you. So a couple of sentences go, I am President Donald J. Trump. I was born on Flag Day in June, on June 14, 1946. So... Trump is actually born on flag day. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Um, it, it has sentences like that. It just reads like Trump were talking to you. It, it reads another sentence is, I have five kids. My children work hard at the Trump organization. I am married to First Lady Melania Trump. And so they can walk through the president's personal biography as well hmm. as his accomplishments. My favorite page of the book, like I said, is, the pro-life page. So I try to model each page on a particular policy issue. So there's a there's a, a a family page, like I mentioned, that has his five children. But then there's a pro-life page. There's a military and veterans page. Uh, there's a page on uh, his platform on Twitter and the MAGA platform. What the MAGA symbol stands for. 
And the the pro-life page really talks about him favoring adoption over abortion. And it helped my kids to see that because we talk a lot about uh, the Democrats and abortion. And they're like, what are all these words? And I say, okay, well, that's a little too much for you to know. Just know that adoption is when the baby is born and then the mom gives the baby up. Um, to other people to care for the baby. So it helps me to teach my children about the different alternatives we have to abortion, which is adoption, which this president highly favors. I mean, just today, we learned that he will be the first president in the history of our country, in the history of the pro-life movement, to speak at the March for Life. He'll be doing that. that on Friday. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I mean, it's... That, that that is remarkable that as you said earlier president donald trump has proven to be the most pro-life president perhaps that we have ever had and uh very much uh, appreciate you coming on the program to talk about your book trump loves america.org dr winnie thanks for joining us thank you if i could just point your audience to trump loves america.org that would be awesome thank you so much absolutely you have a good night when we return maybe john gizzy from newsmax We'll see. I'm making it up as I go tonight. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. been involved in activism as a conservative here in the state of Minnesota. I have been aware of the Legislative Evaluation Assembly of Minnesota. Very very conservative sounding name for a very conservative organization that's been doing yeoman's work keeping track of the voting records of your elected legislators and comparing their votes to this little thing called the Constitution. To what extent is your elected representative adhering to the federal and state founding documents where you can find that out by going to lea-mn.org. Legislative Evaluation Assembly has honorees that they uh, name based upon their score on that scorecard that comes out each year and their banquet to honor those folks is going to happen on February 18th, which is a Monday of this year at the Jimmy's event center in Vadness Heights. And uh, their keynote speaker is going to be John Gizzy, who is the chief political correspondent for Newsmax. And we have him on the line and we're going to be speaking with him here shortly on closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 weeknights. Appreciate you being with us. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us if you feel so inclined. Brianne producing the show and taking your calls. Without further ado, welcome to the program, Mr. Gizzy. Uh, my father's Mr. Gizzy. I'm John. It's a pleasure to be here, Walter, and an honor well, really that I can't put into words to be the speaker at the LEA. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. It's an organization that's near and dear to my heart. So 
Let's pretend that I'm completely unfamiliar with the intricacies of uh, national media. What is it like to be a chief political correspondent? What is that job, and and what do you find yourself doing on a day-to-day basis? Well, obviously, the trial of the century is taking a good deal of my time and uh, watching the opening arguments, the legal peregrinations that go on. But when I'm not covering trials of the century... Uh, I'm at the White House, and occasionally we'll see the president out at Marine One. We'll see members of his official family, from Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney to Counselor Kellyanne Conaway, come out and talk in scrums, small groups of reporters, (laughs) on the lawn of the White House. And uh, then there's the stories you don't know the background on, like when people from the administration talk OTR, off the record, and you can pick up a lot of information. A mm. uh, source told me, for example, General John Kelly would be leaving as the White House Chief of Staff last year, and the same source said, forget all the speculation in the newspapers, Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, would take his job. And that's exactly how it worked out. All of that was information that I was given on the QT under the promise I wouldn't reveal the source. Secretary of Labor said that he was staying on and would fight to the end. Uh, Other sources, deep sources within the administration, said he was a goner. And sure enough, three days after his defiant speech, he was with the president of Marine One saying, I'm out of here. That's the kind of thing I look for and try to report on the news behind the news. And of course, I've covered political campaigns. For many years, I was very proud of the fact John Augustine, who first suggested I speak to the LEA, was my intern. Hmm. He was a darn good person to work with. I did not know that about uh, my friend John Augustine. That's that's an enlightening aspect of his background. So I want to get your perspective on, of course, this current moment. Of course, the impeachment trial, as you note, is moving forward. But before we go there... I'm interested in a little bit of a a behind-the-scenes kind of a personal perspective on what it's like to be a conservative reporter in the the press corps, as it were. Like, do do you find yourself at odds with a lot of your your colleagues within the White House there? No, not at all, and I'll tell you why. When you have to spend a lot of time just within the White House or outside waiting – In other words, when you have a lot of downtime, you don't think of starting an argument with someone else or uh, making enemies because you need to be around these people. When you travel with the president on Air Force One, you're going to be in hotels with these people, sometimes sharing rooms. And it's always been that the ideology of the people in the press room, first and foremost, is journalism and reporting. Now, there are some prima donnas there, and there are some people who are out for promotion. Uh, I was accused of that when I just had my glasses going up and down on my forehead one time. But for the most part, everybody um, gets along. And I'll give you an example, rather than just talking generalities, Walter. Jim Acosta is a controversial figure. As I speak to you from my living room in Washington, uh, I'm 
looking in the bookshelf at his signed book to me, signed very warmly. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with him on some things, but I rather enjoy Jim's company and uh, his background. His style is a little different from mine, as any viewer of the press briefings knows, but that doesn't mean we can't like each other. Sure. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that the the sort of comedy that comes naturally amongst people when they're I- engaged in those personal social interactions doesn't seem to translate to the public discourse. That's true. So so let's transition to the news of the day. So I, I have to confess to you, and in one sense, this is, uh, you could characterize this as negligence from somebody whose job it is to comment on the news, but I got to go where my interest is, and my interest just hasn't been with these proceedings. I just have not been interested in following it because to my mind, it's it's just such a self-evidently a pre-scripted piece of political theater where we know exactly where everybody's going to come down and what their opinions are going to be and what they're going to have to say. And there is no real good faith uh, effort to try to discover anything here. But is your perspective different as somebody who has really been tasked with paying close attention to the day-to-day uh, testimonies. You've hit the nail on the head, Walter. I have to pay attention and to come up with stories that no one else has on this. Uh, John Augustine will certainly remember my old editor at a publication called Human Events and uh, a mentor and friend as well, Alan Riskind. He used to infuriate me by saying, everybody knows this, or this has been out in the paper. Tell me something I don't know. Mm. And that's why I try to get angles on this. I might add along those lines, the White House certainly tries to help. Um, they've given off-the-record or deep background briefings from, well, let me call them sources close to the Trump legal defense team. Mm-hmm. I'll share with you some of that. Uh, number one, they fully expect that witnesses are going to be called, very possibly former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Uh, In addition, um, they are counting on a swift trial that will be over by February 4th in time for the President to deliver the State of the Union. Now, you say February 4th is coming up soon, the day after the Iowa caucuses, I might add. Mm -hmm. Well, remember something. This is a session that can go on till midnight, thanks to Mitch McConnell's rules, and it's going to be going six days a week, not um, seven, not five, but six. You can accomplish a lot then. Uh, so my guess would be, you are correct, there is not a lot that's interesting or intriguing. Um, the calling of witnesses such as Mr. Bolton may change that a little bit, but overall, the outcome is going to be pretty much along party lines. And right. Donald Trump will be acquitted and will be given a hero's welcome by his party when he delivers the State of the Union. So a couple of follow-ups to that. First of all, regarding John Bolton, the, the impression that I got was that it seemed very odd to me that he came out and sort of got ahead of the question of whether or not he would be willing to testify or would put up a fight. Do you get the sense that he's kind of hankering to get in front of a microphone and to tell the Senate what he thinks of this administration and this president, that there might be a bit of an axe to grind? Um, I had the same thoughts 
deep in my heart and mind, Walter, and I spoke to three people who have known John Bolton for decades. Um, David Keene, former chairman of the American Conservative Union and past president of the National Rifle Association. Morton Blackwell, Republican National Committee man from Virginia, head of the Leadership Institute, which trains young people. And Bruce Hershenson, uh, retired professor of foreign policy and government at Pepperdine University, and I might add, by way of disclosure, best man at my wedding. <laughs> to a person, they all said that John Bolton will not only not incriminate the president, will not put any personal feelings he has on the table, but will show and demonstrate why conservatives, whatever problems they may have with Donald Trump, support him. Hmm. He may turn out to be a star witness for the defense hmm. against someone who had a, uh, shall we say, stormy relationship. Absolutely. Him. Absolutely. There's no question about that. I mean, they, and in many I, ways, Bolton's been kind of refuted by some of the choices that the president has made since he left. Well, I can tell you this, that um, the story on Libya has yet to be written by John Bolton or anybody at this point. He wanted the administration to reach out to General Haftar, who uh, is the warlord, who may come to power by force and emerge as a strongman, a la Gaddafi. Uh, he thinks that's the way Libya has to go, rather than trying to bank on democracy. That put him at odds with other people in the administration, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. There were other issues on which they clashed. But I would say this. Pompeo now has what he wants. Bolton mm -hmm. is gone. Uh, his classmate at West Point is Secretary of Defense, his former number two at the CIA, is head of the company, and his friend, uh, Robert O'Brien, is the National Security Council director. In other words, you're talking about someone who's the most powerful Secretary of State since Henry Kissinger, and frankly, he had some clashes with John Bolton. We will see whether Bolton is vindicated in the policy realm because it's all on the shoulders of Mike Pompeo, the vicar of foreign policy. Hmm. So before we let you go, uh, and again, we're speaking with John Gizzi, who is uh, the chief political correspondent at Newsmax. Let's fast forward to the presumptive acquittal of President Donald Trump in this impeachment trial. Right. A am I wrong to view this as a total face plant by Democrats. Like, it just seems as though this entire gambit has has played out in exactly the wrong way for them, and they're going to get no benefit from this. Well, Mark Twain, Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Uh, Republicans in the 1998 midterm elections pursued the impeachment of Bill Clinton, said they were going to do it. Uh, the public did not want to go in that direction. Republicans nearly lost control of the House. And then after they still went ahead with impeachment of Clinton, they narrowly got the votes for it in the House. They had a Senate trial in which the president was not only um, acquitted, but got some Republican votes for acquittal as well. And in the end, President Clinton was a very popular president as he ended his term, 
no one was talking about impeachment in the election year of 2000. Right. So it must be that uh, Donald Trump could emerge with the marbles in this as he faces a very uncertain re-election. We'll see you soon enough. Uh, to get a clue of it, watch the State of the Union and see what you think. All right. Very much appreciate uh, our time with John Gizzi, Chief Politicals Correspondent for Newsmax Media. Thank you for uh, your generous sharing of our time. And, folks, check out the LEA 2020 Awards Banquet. Banquet. You can find out more at lea-mn.org. And tickets are only $35. Come out and see me sometime. I look forward to it and meeting my friends from the Gopher State. Fantastic. We will see you there. Appreciate your time. When we return, stuff. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Pretty hilarious tweet that I tripped upon here during the break. We, of course, spoke about that pro-gun rally that took place in Virginia which uh, motivated the governor to declare an emergency, a state of emergency, because people with guns were coming to town to protest anti-gun legislation. Well, of course, it came, it went without incident. It was a legal rally, lawfully permitted, and nobody was arrested for breaking the law. There were conflicting reports on that. There was at one point an account of a woman being arrested specifically for refusing to remove a mask from her face. And I found that odd. I, I, I'm not I, my question. And I tend to suspect she wasn't one of the pro gun protesters because the media made nothing of it. Right. If she had actually been involved in the protest and had been a Second Amendment advocate, you can believe we would know her name and we'd be hearing about her. I tend to suspect, and there's also the fact that she was hiding her face, which is something that you don't tend to see amongst uh, those on the right. That's that's an anti-fa behavior. I tend to suspect that the one person who got arrested while this rally was taking place was actually somebody from the left, which is hilarious if that turns out to be true. But it's fascinating, you know, this event came and went, and it was it was peaceful. There was no riot, no unrest. It was just a simple protest, a simple rally where people gave speeches, expressed their opinion, petitioned their government, and went home, much like uh, any given Tea Party rally which took place a decade ago. Well, in spite of that, some on the left are saying that no, no, no. Sure, nobody got shot. Sure, nobody died. But it wasn't exactly peaceful. Indeed, that's the the headline over at GQ. That pro-gun rally in Virginia wasn't exactly peaceful. And Simon Owens tweets this out, and this is his comment. He says this. Conservatives are patting themselves on the back because nobody died during the Richmond gun rally. But that didn't make the threat of violence any less real or terrifying for those Richmond citizens who knew they could be slaughtered at any moment. And so this is the standard. Violence is now, violence is now bearing your arms, right? Like if you own a gun and you carry it, that unto itself constitutes violence. Even if you do so at a permitted rally, 
and obey every law on the books. This in contrast to those on the left whose protests are unpermitted and involve openly declared and organized violation of the law, planned trespass, planned vandalism, planned shutting down of mass transit, of streets, of roads, of freeways, of trains, planned disruption at airports. You you think back to Black Lives Matter here in the Twin Cities, shutting down the airport on Christmas Eve, keeping people from being able to commune with their own families so that they could make a political statement. None of that is violence. That's, that is peaceful protest as far as the left is concerned. But this gun rally where nigh a law was broken is violence. Are you catching on here to how this works? You're violent because you disagree with them. Disagreement with them is violence. Just like with, with the, and this is an application of the same critical thought process. Just like in critical race theory, being white makes you a racist. In the view of Simon Owens and the author of GQ, being a Second Amendment advocate, being a gun owner, and having the audacity to carry your weapon in public makes you violent inherently. Regardless of what you do with that weapon, its mere presence, its existence, and your ownership makes you a criminal. This is how they think, and that is why it is so important to continue to stand up for and and do so aggressively in protection of all of your rights, including those protected by the Second Amendment. Let's talk to Zach from Lino Lakes. Appreciate you joining the program. So let me approach this again from a comprehensively biblical worldview. See, um, I honestly do see a lot of cognitive dissonance on all sides. See, the, the, the left cognitive dissonance is obvious to most listeners because they call people who want to own guns violent. Meanwhile, they're okay with a state using violence to enforce those gun laws, which that cognitive dissonance is obvious. Hmm. However, conservatives, when they claim to uh, support you know, gun freedom and stuff, how often do they actually call for like, the abolition of all gun restrictions? I mean, and how often do they have a consistent voice? What really, what, what really stood out to me is that even by, like, say, your average gun advocacy group's own standards, um, the shooting of Philando Castile should have been something they raised a ruckus about, but they didn't. And that spoke volumes to me. So there's, a, there's an issue that goes beyond politics, and... and uh, I think it's a spiritual issue because there's a lot of idolatry behind a lot of the different rhetoric we hear on all sides. And um, going to the going to the worldview aspect, I really do think that on both sides of the debate, there are a lot of people in different ways who trust the state as their lord and savior. See, I don't I don't believe it's biblical or constitutional at all to regulate firearms. Period. Scripture doesn't have the doesn't allow the state the uh, ability to prevent crime quote unquote because only the holy spirit ultimately can prevent crime and i don't need to rely on the state as my lord and savior i need to rely on jesus as my lord and savior and somebody who comes and rescues me and we need more people who obey god's commands to love their neighbor as themselves 
and stick up for them when they're being oppressed in some way, shape, or form, which is why it's a good thing to carry a weapon in obedience to Christ. But we just think that more government in some way, shape, or form is going to save us. It's not just a political issue. And until, until the conservative side repents of their different kinds of idolatry, a tiny bit of compromise here and a little bit of compromise there, we're still going to see more statism and still more tyranny and still more violence. I mean, our, our tyranny right now is far higher, far greater than uh, King George's tyranny. And uh, we haven't been throwing tea into the harbor yet, have we? <laughs> very, very fair point. Appreciate your perspective as always, Zach. Um, yeah, that's a point that has been made before, and I think with a high degree of merit, that our level of tolerance for oppression, state oppression, is significantly higher than what prompted our forebears to literally take up arms uh, against the uh, authorities that were governing over them. Not that that's what I'm advocating for, but it is a historical note nonetheless. 651-989-5855, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. sitting here contemplating how my bio should read after the show comes to an end this week it has been a host of closing argument on tc news talk heard eight to ten weeknights for quite some time so i've been i've been defined by the show so what's my bio going to be now my social media bio i don't know this is gonna be something generic Maybe something funny? I'll have to think about it. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 8 to 10 tomorrow, <laughs> and then it's over. I'm going to have to, tomorrow's going to be tough, because I'm going to keep, just out of habit, I'm going to be in that promotional mode of, hey, here's who we are and when you can hear us, except that information is now completely useless to you. It's going to be a fascinating experience tomorrow evening. I hope you guys will be able to tune in live to our, our final show and the surprises that not even I am privy to. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brianne, producing the show, taking your calls. Now, as longtime listeners to the program are aware, we have a, a certain set of standing rules here on the program. The number one rule is that anyone who ever calls in to complain about bicyclists or tell bicycle-related stories goes right to the top of the queue. I think only one person has taken me up on this over three years. Well, we now have a second. Stephen Hopkins, welcome to the program. Hey, sir. How's it going? Good. All right. So I was driving my son to school um, a few days ago, and there was snow and ice everywhere. And I saw the guy, you know, like out on the mountain bike. And I just, I just said, he's going to slip and fall. Mm-hmm. And my and my son and I started to laugh at him. And then on the way home from school, uh, it was you know um, it was like it, it two degrees out and all the blowing wind. And I saw some guy out on a bicycle, and he he did we lose did you? Have, oh, there we go. Well, he he had forgot to stick on the face mask. And uh-huh. he 
had his head cocked completely into the side, and he's and he's trying to survive the wind, and it was just hilarious. I just started laughing at him. <laughs> All right, Stephen, I appreciate you sharing that anecdote. Uh, bicyclists in winter. It sounds like the uh, the title of one of those pretentious photo essays that you might find displayed at a at a side room in the Capitol or at a art school somewhere. I, I could be down for that. Let's talk to Colin in Bloomington. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so first off, I just want to say uh, I haven't been able to listen to you quite as much. I'm not out as late as I used to be, as frequently as I once was, but definitely sad to hear that you're going off the air and uh, hopefully i'm still able to find you somewhere on social media because i definitely like what you have to say appreciate that um but so a few things i want to i'd like to talk about it you know when, I, when brianne took the call there was just one and then i had to listen to the uh the, the god guy going on and on for a minute and that just kind of got my ire up not that i don't respect religion but i think uh him and his camp would do well to not tie it so directly to conservatism because i am staunchly not a Christian. I know there are a lot of people just like me who are not Christian or even atheists who would be otherwise dyed-in-the-wool conservatives, and, you know, it, it kind of turns us off and puts a bad taste in our mouth when you tie conservatism to, to Christ so much. There's, it's entirely possible, and in fact, it's quite common to live an extremely moral life without your rooting being in Christianity or Christ. I'm a very moral person, and I follow more of a pagan lifestyle, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I guess, so the, the, what re, the reason that prompted my call was I heard you talking um, regarding the rally down in Richmond over uh, Martin Luther King Day. Multiple times you stated that it was a permitted, legal demonstration, a permitted mm -hmm. protest. Mm -hmm. I know you're conservative with a, a fairly libertarian bent, um, my question to you, and then after we wrap this up, I do have one more comment that I wanted to make, but I'll save that to the very end. Uh, my question to you is, how do you honestly feel about permitting for civil rights? I mean, I know for myself, I, I view that the Second Amendment is my gun permit. I'm a civil rights absolutist. I think it is utterly repugnant to even think that I should have to apply for a permit to, to own or purchase or carry a weapon, just like I think it's absolutely ridiculous to think that we could have permitted protests when it's literally written in plain text the right of the people to peaceably assemble shall not be abridged right and a right delayed is a right denied so i guess my my question to you is what what is your personal stance on permitting for demonstrations like that well i think the the unstated premise that seems to be interwoven in the question is that the, the capacity to protest the the actual act of uh, petitioning your government for a redress of grievance comes hand in hand with access to the the mall outside of the uh, virginia capital and that's where i would take umbrage that there is no right to you have a right to assemble you don't have the right to assemble in front of the capital you don't have a right to assemble on somebody else's property. You don't have well, a right to assemble. Can I, can I yeah, interject there? The the capital belongs to the taxpayers. That that so does the, so does the library. There. So does the library. But if I go there at three in the morning and you know break down the door and end up setting up camp in the middle of it, I'm going to get arrested and rightfully so. Right, but no one was talking about breaking down the door to the Capitol. They can rally on the lawn. But the That's principle is the principle is is that the the public policy governs 
our rightful access to public space. And so if public policy calls for a permit in order to access that space for the purpose of a rally, then that's what you need in order to use it for that purpose. Now, they could have rented out uh, a stadium and had a rally, and the gov- if the government took any action to prevent them from being able to do that, then you'd have a point. But the idea that you, you should be able to just access public streets, access public sidewalks, interrupt public infrastructure, cause a ruckus in front of the Capitol or in City Hall. All of these areas have laws and rules and protocols that are properly in place in order to ensure that there's order. And you don't get to just up in that because you have a strong opinion. I I suppose I agree that the laws are in place. Um, I guess my fundamental disagreement would be that... Uh, the supreme law of the land is and always has been the Constitution, and any law that is repugnant or runs counter to that is null and void and should be ignored by free men. We are honor-bound to ignore all laws which run counter to the Constitution, and I personally feel anything that abridges, restricts, or impinges on your right to assemble and petition your uh, your uh, government for redress is prima facie unconstitutional. So uh, requiring a permit or much like they do on college campuses where they have free speech zones and they're right, important right, off, right, 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 off. That's, right. I mean, is that, but see, that's, what that demonstrates is more of the, hypocr- the hypocrisy of that institution, that they don't really believe in free speech. But I listen, let me, let's end it with this. I, I love where your, I love where your heart's at. I do have the one more comment I wanted to sure. make at the end, separate all that. But yeah, please, please continue. Well, I love where your heart's at, and I agree with the sentiment that you're articulating. Our disagreement is over the premise of of what constitutes a restriction of protest. I do not believe that a permit to access public property for a stated purpose is a violation of a person's right to speak or protest or petition their government. Okay. I mean, agree to disagree. You, uh, you articulated that pretty well, but... Um you know, I, I like a lot of what you say, but that doesn't mean I've got to give you full-throated acceptance to sure. 100% of it. Absolutely. But, hey, still respect the hell out of you. And uh, my last point I wanted to make, and, you know, we've we've had some words before. I think you and I, I I've enjoyed our, our conversations, but uh, one thing where I'm, I'm going to break with you on, you may not be, but I am absolutely, unequivocally, openly advocating for armed revolt against the government. I, I'll let you have that final word. <laughs> that, appreciate it. That's that's uh, that is one hundred percent Colin, zero percent Walter on that one. Twin Cities News Talk, AM eleven thirty, one zero three five FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk dot com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Let's go to Chris in Coon Rapids. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hey, Walter. Uh, first-time caller. I've listened to you for quite a while. I work late. I've you know, listened to you on the ride home. Really enjoyed your show. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a theologically conservative Christian and a conservative, you know, politically, and I'm so impressed with how you have combined your uh, beliefs with your politics. I used to be pretty involved in the Republican Party, your chair of a district, and a lot of conservative Christian Republicans make an idol out of politics. Mm-hmm. And 
like I said, I just, I really have enjoyed how you have put your faith and politics together without uh, elevating your politics above your, your faith. And, uh, I wish I could have listened to you more. I'm really sorry to hear you leaving. Um, I, I you've probably said this a hundred times already, but what's next for you? And, uh, why are you leaving the show? <laughs> Well, okay, so as concisely as I can, um, the, the reasons for leaving the show are multifaceted, but mostly it comes down to it's been, it has been a high stress proposition from the start because this has never been a moneymaker. This has always been something that I've done on the side for the passion of doing it. And uh, I've had to interweave it between family and my day job. Uh, and church responsibilities and, you know, various other things that have come and gone. And it's just gotten to the point where something's got to break. And it's, it's, I've kind of been at that point for a while where I could have gone in either direction of either fully committing to something like this or leaving it behind. And the question, the question that was going to determine it is what circumstances were going to arise one way or the other. And the circumstances which arose were a job that, uh, enable me to reevaluate some things, reposition some things, to spend some more time at home. Now, as far as what's coming in the future, nothing planned. But I have this uh, this itch, this hunger to be doing something in the media space, and I can't imagine that's going to go away. We'll be back in some capacity. I don't know where. I don't know how. But at some point in the unspecified future, there will be continued uh, commentary along these lines. To, to your first point, though, Chris, which I, I really appreciate, and it's, it stands in contrast to the call we had in the last segment from Colin, right. who, who very much, who very much objected to the Christocentric uh, rooting of the commentary from Zach and Lionel Lakes and through extension, my own. It's been one of the the really pleasant surprises of this project of doing this show to discover the extent to which there are no walls. There is no compartmentalizing my spiritual beliefs, my theology and my religion from my politics and from every other aspect of my life. And I th- I think the one takeaway that I would encourage people to to have from our show and from what we've done here is precisely that that I, I'm calling people to be more religious. I, I really am because re- being religious, which is to say, taking your beliefs seriously, having convictions that emerge from those beliefs, and advocating for them as if they matter in the real world and and can actually affect good in the world. If you're not there, if, if that's not how you feel about what you believe, then your beliefs are de facto irrelevant. And at that point, what's, why do you even hold them? What's the point of even contemplating them if they don't ultimately matter? And, you know, the, the left understands this. The left takes their beliefs very seriously and are extraordinarily religious, despite it being Un, unchristian quite often and you know, taking on a sometimes taking on a secular humanist form, but they are nonetheless very religious in their approach to the culture. And we need to be as well and more so than they are if we want any hope of being able to carry the day because it's the person who who preaches 
and teaches and evangelizes and contends for their faith, that's the person who's going to win the culture. Yeah, well said. I, I appreciate your compassion and your intellectualism and uh, your portrayal of your you know Christianity. I, I think you've done such a, a, just a great job, and I'm, a lot of people are going to miss you. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for calling in and it being the first time. And uh, thank you very much, Chris, and uh, Coon Rapids. It's good to know, because i got to tell you, there have definitely been nights where you come in here, and Brianne's nodding her head, she knows. You come in here at 8 o'clock at night, it's a quiet night, maybe we don't get very many callers, and every once in a while you think to yourself, man, am I just talking to myself? <laughs> like, is this, am I just, am I in my bathroom staring in the mirror being self-indulgent, or is anybody actually getting anything out of this? And since the announcement that we were concluding the program, uh, folks have come out of the woodwork to make it very clear that you have been there and you have been listening, and you have seen value in it, whether we agreed or not. Like the the Collins within our listenership who have a different perspective, and we've had other callers who identify on the left side of the ideological spectrum, is not the degree to which you agree with me that has given this project merit. It's the degree to which you've found something useful in it in your own exercise of trying to negotiate the reality in which you find yourself. You know, that that's really what I'm what I'm calling people to more than anything is to really set yourself to the task of thinking. I mean, it it sounds simple, but it's not. Choosing to think and then applying what you discover through that thought process to the conduct of your life in pursuit of your own happiness and and you know it really it's it sounds simple but it's not it really isn't as evidenced by how far astray our culture has drifted uh, from that enlightenment rational process of conceiving and pursuing and building and having an outlook for the future that's optimistic and positive and productive and, and raising up families and building communities and building churches and planting churches and building schools and looking to the future and looking beyond your own life and trying to leave a legacy. You know, these are things that have become almost alien in our in our soundbite 24-hour news cycle culture. But not for us. We know better. One more night of closing argument. We hope you'll join us 8 to 10 tomorrow. Twin Cities News Talk. Dot com.